How many of you remember the poster that had the guy with the beard, I think it was, and the long face, and he had the finger, and he would be pointing out, and no matter where you were in the room, it seemed like his eyes were watching you. And what did the poster say? I want you. Thus, uh, that was the call across the nation during previous times of war. I've not seen that poster much lately, but I recall as a young boy the first time I saw that. Me? I'd scoot to the left and his eyes were still on me. I'd scoot to the right. I said, how does that picture know to follow me? And he wants me. And I learned that, you know, that our government was looking for soldiers. They wanted people to serve. We were talking this week to one of the men in our church who did answer that call. And we got a little color on his first experience as a soldier. As you know, Owen's headed back. We've got several military folks in our church. We called one this week and asked about his first day in the military. And Sean Scheller relates that back in November of 2002, he had been up about 36 hours. And he had joined the Marines previous to that, and so they put him on a bus, and they had the windows black, and then it was covered, and they didn't know, uh, he didn't know where they were going, and he rides, and he rides, and he rides, he gets to these barracks, and he's already extremely tired, he's signed up for this tour with the Marines, and he's hauling these barracks, and there's yellow lines, and there's red lines, and they're in their face. They're yelling at them about where to stand and what they can say and can't say. And, and Sean described to me and Marty how those, that first experience when he was marked as a soldier, you know what that means, don't you? He had his whole head shaved. They were all in line. They gave up their personal belongings. And they were told at that time, whatever you put in this, uh, put in this bag, you can keep. Otherwise, it's out of here. It's history. And they're just piling boxes full. And he's thinking, all I'm keeping is what's in this little green bag. And after he was done, of course, they gave him back the stuff that was... But they were probably teaching him how to say goodbye to things and be done with this life. And they stripped him of their clothes down to their underwear. They shaved their head. They turned in all their belongings. I mean, Sean's in line. He's dead tired. He's been worn down and worn down. And he sat in these army barracks in this metal chair. And this man takes a razor to his head without any regard to how he feels or how he looks. And he's a shaving ball. Sends him to his next station. They get tons of shots. And... Sean relayed to us that after so many hours, he said, I was so tired and worn down. All I wanted to do was was go to sleep. He said, but that was only the beginning. (laughs) He said, I was marked as a soldier. How many of you have seen a soldier before? They've got a nice haircut, don't they? How many of you would agree with that? Amen. I can't tell you how many times I've been mistaken for a military. I've had folks say to me, so you work with the military? And I said, well, not exactly your kind of military, but I'm in somebody's army. Amen. We'll laugh about that. But they, they marked Sean as a soldier, sent him off, and then they began to mold him as a soldier. In two words, that's called what? Boot camp. And for a number of weeks, Sean is told when to go to bed, when to get up. And George is just smiling up here because I'm probably not even giving up. A glimpse of what it's really like, am I, George? But forgive me, I'm a guy who's trying to relay this to people. And, and he, he's told when to get up, when to go to bed, what to eat, and how to make his bed, and how to wear his clothes, and who he can call, and who he can't call. And that whole process of marking our soldiers and molding our soldiers really pays great dividends in the long run, doesn't it? You and I can sit in this auditorium in freedom. Sean's experience is not only his experience. I'm sure millions of men from past and present share that that common experience as a soldier where they're marked and they're molded. Because that's what 
our government does. They call out for men and women who want to serve, and then they mark them and they mold them. And you know, in a spiritual sense, God is doing much the same thing. He's calling for soldiers, for people. And He wants to mark you, and He wants to mold you. And one of the best illustrations of how God does this, and how He did this in the Old Testament, and how His character, even then and today, is still the same. He's a God that calls out to us, and He wants to mark us and mold us for battles ahead. One of the best examples of that is in Joshua 5. I ask you to turn there, would you? Joshua chapter 5. And I hope that in Joshua 5 you have your first family bookmark. Amen. How many of you have one of these with you in your Bible this week? Raise your hand. That's awesome. Keep this before you. Keep praying for a victory offering coming up in a few weeks. I trust that you are also using, utilizing your victory markers. And come November 18th, we're going to really enjoy celebrating that day in one service here at 1030. All the victories that God has, has brought our way in this 50 days of victory. Joshua 5 lays out for us the call of Jehovah, not only to the nation of Israel, but to their leader Joshua. Look with me, Joshua chapter 1. Let's just see how God begins to mark His people. The Bible says in chapter 5, verse 1 of the book of Joshua, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard before the Israelites, uh, heard, excuse me, how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Now, if, if I'm a normal military soldier, if I'm a Joshua, at that moment, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, attack. They're scared. They're worried. They're hearing the reports. Now's the time to be on the move. Let's march. Let's go get them. But God does something a little different. Look at verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. And that's going to put a lot of the men in the camp, a lot of the soldiers, out of commission. It's the opposite of attacking. He's putting them on the sidelines for a while. Odd that God would choose when the enemy's afraid to kind of take a break and to almost stall for a minute. But there's a reason for it. So Joshua in verse 3 did exactly what God said. He made the flint knives and he circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now, verses 4 through about verses 8 describe why he did that. Let me just kind of give you a... Uh, a succinct version of that. If you recall, when the Israelites were at Kadesh Barnea and they said, No, God, we do not believe you can cross us over and take the promised land. We actually believe the ten spies who give us the negative report. When that happened, God sent them on a 40-year detour, right? And they wandered in unbelief. And during that time, they did not circumcise all the newborn males. In fact, there are some scholars who believe that God actually, for this 38 to 40 year period, set aside, kind of took a break, so to speak, from His covenant with Israel. I'm not sure I buy that totally. But there, is, there does seem to be a, a sense of when, when, in which God said, you know what, you're kind of on the shelf for a time. You're kind of wandering in unbelief. And when all of those soldiers, all those uh, who are above a certain age, when they die off, then I'll kind of start working with you again. It's almost as if you said that. Part of the proof of that is in the fact that they did no circumcision in the wilderness. So, all the older generation has died off. 
Here they are now in faith. They've crossed over, but they've got a generation of soldiers who do not bear the physical mark of God's covenant people. Are you with me? Remember how it was established with Abraham? And so God was establishing that this mark was, was a, um, a, the visible factor of His covenant with the Jewish nation. So He thought to Himself, well, if we're going to go into battle now and, and we're going to conquer these people, I want you to be marked as my own. Now, don't underestimate the importance of circumcision in the Old Testament. Do you recall when Moses in Exodus chapter 4 was about to go back to Egypt? He had had a couple of sons while he was a shepherd in the desert. And they were uncircumcised. And before Moses could actually partake of his role as leader and lead those folks out of Egypt, he had to circumcise his own sons. And his wife Zipporah actually did it. Because it seems from the text that Moses was somewhat timid and afraid to. Which would make sense, right? He was timid and afraid to go back to Egypt. In fact, Zipporah in Exodus 4 says, You're a bloody husband. That's what she calls him. This is somewhat of a mature subject here, but I trust you'll just bear with me because it gives you some insight into the importance of circumcision for the Old Testament people. Moses was not even allowed to go back and lead until he had taken care of his own family. Here the Jewish nations, they were not going to be allowed to cross over and partake in the battles until they had circumcised their soldiers. This was God's mark to His covenant people. This is how, at least nationally, they were different. Circumcision. And so Joshua does exactly that in verses 4 through 8. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, When did God say this to Joshua? After he had obeyed and marked God's people. And we'll just keep this slide up here because it kind of explains the overall point we're talking about. When that happened, watch this in verse 9. God said, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Now, now that's an odd phrase. I've been thinking for about, about two or three months. What does it mean for God to roll away the reproach of the Israelites after they crossed over? It seems like their faith had been exhibited. It seems like in the Red Sea and the Passover, remember the Passover in Egypt? That's when God dealt with the sin. The blood was on the doorpost and the death angel came. And It seemed like God dealt with Egypt back then. Why now, 40 years later, is He saying, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you? I'm going to tell you what I think it is. We're not told specifically in the text what the Lord means. But I think He means this. If you recall, at Kadesh Barnea, when the, the 12 spies came back, and 10 said we can't do it, and 2 said we could, and the Israelite nation gave in to the popular vote, the Lord and Moses had a conversation. And God was going to destroy the whole nation and start over with Moses. And Moses said, God, now follow this, this is a personification of a conversation, but Moses said, God, you can't do that. If you do that, all of the nations around us will hear and they'll say, ha, 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 it wasn't true after all. All those things that he told Abraham, all those things he told you, they're not even true. In other words, Moses said, God, we bring reproach upon your name. We'd be a laughing stop. People would say it really wasn't true. And I think instead of obviously starting over with Moses, God said, okay, and the Bible records that in this personified way that God kind of changed his mind. And that's a way of saying he listened to a man and, and kind of reasoned. And so it's a, it's a tough scripture. But what it says there is this, that, that God said, you know what, Moses, more important is than perhaps um, you know destroying these people and starting over is is the... The, the character of my name. And so he lets these folks wander in unbelief. And I think for, for, for those 40 years, I think other nations did exactly that. 
they probably thought, wow, your God's really cool. He's taken you 40 years to get around what should be about a three-day journey. And for about 40 years, they probably did laugh and scorn the nation because of the people's unbelief. But after their time of disobedience and after their time of punishment, shall we say, God brought them through. Guess what? They, they were circumcised and the reproach has been gone. No more can nations say, hey, what happened to your God? I thought He brought you out of Egypt to give you the promised land. But something went wrong, didn't it? Seems like you're wandering around. No more can they say that. Those days of laughter and scorn are gone. And God's people are now on the precipice of being the people they were supposed to have been 40 years early. The reproach is gone. No one's laughing anymore, are they? There's no more scorn. And so He marks the people. God's name and character are, are again at a high pinnacle place in the eyes of the other nations. And so that place was called Gilgal, which actually is the Hebrew word meaning to roll. Did you know that? And Gilgal became a prominent place in the Old Testament scheme of the nation of Israel. It's where the nation's reproach was rolled away. How? Because God marked His people through circumcision. In fact, a lot of things in this, at this place called Gilgal happened. You'll read in verses 10 through about 12 that the manna stopped. They observed the Passover, the manna stopped. Now watch this, guys. At Gilgal, here's what happened. And in a broad sense, the past was left behind. You see, every time manna came, it reminded them of what? Their days in the wilderness. God only gave them enough for one day at a time. Everything about their experience indicating the wilderness stopped. And God would say, listen, I'm done with your days of unbelief. And I want you to be done with it too. And they were because they had crossed over the Jordan River. They were at a new place. A place where all that was rolled away. It's called Gilgal. And they're about to enter into a a series of battles. God was calling them to a new kind of life. And to, to recognize that, he circumcised those who had not been circumcised in those years of unbelief. It was a new day. He marked them as his people. Now, lest you think that the external was always God's focus, I want to correct you quickly on that. Because some folks hear about circumcision and they think, well, that was back in the Old Testament when God needed to show folks on the outside what was going on. And, and now it's all about the heart. I agree 100% with that comment except for one thing. God's view has always been about the heart. Even in the days when He circumcised the Israelites and that was part of His commandment, it was still about the heart first. Let me show you some verses that are contained in the Old Testament law that show us God's God's view has always got the heart in mind. Look at Deuteronomy 10.16 here. You might want to jot these down because it really shows us the heart of our great Jehovah. It shows us that God, even when He marked His people physically, He was not some external you know, manipulator who said, only do what's right on the outside. He always had the heart in mind. Deuteronomy 10.16, He says, Circumcise your what? Hearts. Do not be stiff-necked any longer. Jeremiah repeated this in the prophets when he said, Circumcise yourselves. The Lord circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah. So, I give you those verses to show you something. A lot of folks think, well, back then you had to be saved by circumcision. And that's how God saved you. Not at all. That's how God marked those who were already following Him by faith. In fact, here's proof positive. When Abraham was given the call by God to 
leave the land he was in and go to a land he didn't know existed. You recall that? And the Bible says, based on Hebrews 11 and Genesis, that he, he got up and went. It wasn't until about 60 or 70 years later that Abraham was circumcised. But when did God reckon, as the Bible says, kind of a weird word, but when did God reckon Abraham's faith and count him as righteous? It was when he said, Lord, I'll follow. Isn't that neat? God's heart is always for your heart to respond by faith. And then in the Old Testament, He marked that through circumcision. You say, well, Todd, how does He do that today? We're not under that command today. Galatians clearly reveals that it's not about being circumcised or uncircumcised. That's not at all what God's after. So how does God mark His people today? That's a very good question. I want to give you a really clear answer that that will uh, apply here in a, in a neat way. Probably the New Testament corollary to Old Testament circumcision is baptism. In fact, most scholars really believe that's the, the current method by which God, what's this, marks His people. Now, it's kind of a loose analogy because in circumcision, obviously, it's an external thing. You can see it and it's kind of a, a forever deal. Baptism seems a little more loose in the sense that, you know, once you're wet, you dry off, you really can't it last forever in the sense of, like, you can't see that someone's been baptized necessarily. But the, the analogy is really proven in, the, in the, the book of Colossians. In fact, write this scripture down. Let's look at this together. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11, 11 and 12. Let me show what the Bible here says. It says that in Him you were also circumcised. And there's a comma. You see the comma there? Grammatically, you can skip from that place all the way down to the word having about middle way through the verse. There's a parenthetical kind of a phrase set off there by commas. Now here's what it reads uh, in our NIV. And this is a good translation by what it says, In Him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by hands of men. In other words, not a medical procedure, but a heart procedure. The circumcision done by Christ. And then here's the phrase where it picks up again after the word circumcised in the top. You could say it like this. That's when we were buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God. Who raised Him from the dead? In other words, the way that people know that our faith was real and that we meant what we said, that we really embraced the gospel and put our trust in Jesus, is when we are baptized. You can read it like this. In Him you were also circumcised, having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God. Now, I tell you that because I, I want you to understand something. I've, I've explained this before and I want, to, I want to say this again to your first family. A lot of churches and a lot of Christians really kind of minimize two things. In the American church culture, they minimize communion and they minimize baptism. Sometimes churches will just kind of baptize folks, you know, like, well, wherever it happens, you don't need to watch it. And, and we just kind of say, well, once you're saved, you know, get baptized when you want to. And we almost make baptism seem like it's, it's just a, kind of an afterthought. But did you realize that in the Great Commission, Jesus Christ said as His last words, go to all the world... Preach the gospel and do what? Baptizing them. Now, that's not how we're saved. We're saved by grace alone. Amen? We're no more saved by baptism today than they were by a circumcision then. But I will tell you this. It does sometimes unnerve me when I watch how little importance 
baptism gets in the American church. When in reality, it may very well be the mark of those who are really born again. In fact, in the New Testament church in Acts 2, what is the very first thing that happened to those who accepted the message? Tell me. They were baptized. And that very first service at Pentecost, 3,000 heard the message and were baptized. And I'd love to have a service where 3,000 folks accept the gospel and embrace it. And then, oh, by the way, we'll bring in some pizza. We've got a lot of folks to baptize. But sometimes we're, we almost act like, well, we're going to offend someone. And, and they said they were baptized when they were a little baby. And, and we don't want to make them mad. And I'm not here to make anyone mad. But I am here to be very clear with you about something. There is not a single scriptural example of someone being baptized before they were a Christian. Did you know that? There's not a single scriptural example of a baby or of a child being baptized as a way to show a future faith. The scriptural model is always after salvation under the water. Now, there are historical arguments that kind of teach other things, but we, we take the Bible at face value. And when you talk about baptism... You've got to be willing to say this, and this is just an honest conversation between me and you. Baptism in the Bible is by immersion, after salvation, and it is commanded. Did you know that? Now parents, I realize that if your child comes to Christ at age 6, I'm with you. I wouldn't just say, hey, we've only got a small window here, get ready to get wet, and boom, you don't come in. And there is a place in which you want to understand your obedience. I'm with you there. But your heart matters here and your motives matter. And if you're just kind of putting off a conversation with your children about a biblical command, I would really ask you to evaluate your parenting in regards to your your kids' spirituality, amen, and their obedience to God. Talk to your children about it. Maybe there's adults here who've come to Christ in the last several years and you've never been baptized. But I would say to you, based on Colossians 2 and other scriptures in the New Testament, you have not yet been marked... As a follower. Yes, you, you're saved. Grace alone saves us. But God is, is almost in a sense waiting for you to take this very first step of discipleship. In fact, that's why at First Family we believe that baptism is not a last step for membership like a lot of churches. Are you with me? They think, hey, join the church and you've got to get saved and baptized. No, no. To join Christ's body, you only need to believe. Amen? Hallelujah. Grace alone saves But baptism is the very first step of discipleship. That's proven throughout the New Testament. And I'm here in a humble but honest way to ask every single person, in 2007, have you been marked by God as His follower? That's not too much for me to ask you, is it? That's not a tough question because the Bible seems to teach in the New Testament and even back in the Old Testament that once we believe there's this mark, this this physical way God seems to call His soldiers to Him. He called the nation of Israel. And today in our culture, in the New Testament age of grace, God calls all of those who believe to be baptized. Have you been baptized by immersion after conversion? If not, i got some great news for you. You're in a church that loves to baptize people. Amen? We love to...
Follow God's commands in Matthew 28, Mark 16, 15, Colossians 2, Romans 6, just to name a few, by the way. We love to follow God's commands of, of baptizing people. November 11th is the next time we're baptizing folks. And I just want to give you a point of application. If you're here this morning and you've never been scripturally baptized, which is after conversion, by immersion, then just on your feedback card, leave me a note, would you? Say, Todd, I appreciate the clarity. appreciate your honesty and... I want to talk to you about being baptized because I believe it is the way God marks His people in this New Testament period. Well, the children of Israel were all marked. Excuse me, the the men, of course, were all marked. Those soldiers were healing and they were waiting. And Joshua leaves that medical tent, so to speak, and he heads back perhaps to his headquarters. And that's where we pick it up in verse 13. Look with me. He's in battle mode, by the way. and He meets a, a gentleman on his way back to perhaps his headquarters or where he's staying. Look at verse 13. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Now, don't forget where Joshua just came from. He came from, you know, the mash unit, so to speak. He came from that medical tent, those flint knives and this whole... Procedure, and he's thinking we're getting ready for battle. Man, bring on Jericho. When everyone gets healed, we're going to take it by storm. He's in military mode. And he sees this, this military man. And so his first question after he draws his sword in verse 13 is this. Are you for us or for our enemies? Which, by the way, is a very legitimate question for a military general. Amen? You want a guy in charge who's going to clarify the issue. Amen? Verse 14, you ought to circle this word. Neither. That's an odd answer. You would think if he was commander of the Lord's army, he would say, oh, Joshua, I'm with you, dude. But he says, neither. And then he says, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua then does an amazing thing. He fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander in verse 15 says this, Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You know, when I, when I see this end of chapter 5, I realize that not only did God want to mark His people and prepare them to be identified with Him, but God wanted to mold their leader. And you know, sometimes in the midst of our battles, in the midst of our projects, right in the middle of our agendas, and boy, we're all going to be, we can all speak on this issue, can't we? God comes to us. And He says, hey, um, don't forget about me. And sometimes our work for the Lord takes precedence over our worship of the Lord. Can we get an amen there? Does anybody relate to that? We tend to be so busy for God that we have forgotten how to relate to God and our whole identity, our whole spiritual uh, personhood is wrapped up in what we do. And we've got to be at church at this time and be at our lighthouse at this time and give this amount of money. And while those are good things, when they rise above the best thing, which is worshiping God, when they rise above the best, suddenly we have let the good substitute for the best. And when the good substitutes for the best, life dries up. 
it gets hard. Bitterness sets in and we start wandering with an A. As opposed in times of worship, we wonder with an O, don't we? And God is just awesome in our view. He reigns supreme and every day is is an experience in which we, we say, God, how incredible you are! But when the good takes the place of the best and it's all work and no worship, we begin to wonder. And we ask a lot of why questions. I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know why this is happening. And we find ourselves straying. I think that in this, in this brief encounter, when the commander said to Joshua, I am not on either side, he was saying to, the, to Joshua, listen, that's not why I'm here. I'm not here to take sides right now. I'm here to take over. Now, some scholars wonder if this commander was actually a theophany, which is a Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. It's kind of a big word, and if you're looking for a, you know, to kind of increase your vocabulary today, there's a $10 word for you. Theophany. It simply means that Christ, before the New Testament, appeared in bodily form. I don't think this is a theophany here. Now, in Genesis to Abraham, we think, I think it was. There's other times I believe it was as well. I believe this here was simply a messenger from Jehovah who said to Joshua, Listen, I'm not here to, to make battle plans right now. I'm here to make sure your heart is right. Very similar to what happened to Mary and Martha in the New Testament when Jesus Christ visited their home. Remember that? And, and one of them is scurrying and working. I believe it was Martha. She was the worker bee, wasn't she? She was the doer. Where was Mary? At the where? Feet of Jesus. And what did Jesus say in response to this situation? He could have been like a lot of pastors and politicians. He says, oh, don't worry. You're both right. Yeah, I want you to all feel good. Don't worry. Relax. He didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. He cuts to the core of the issue and he said, listen, Mary's chosen that good part. Now, I've often wondered how Martha felt at that moment. She's a woman, so you spell that emotion. Here's Jesus giving her a pretty cut-to-the-chase cut answer. I wonder if she got upset or if she stormed off to the kitchen or if she made a face. I don't know. But I love the way Jesus was honest and clear, and, and I think kind as well, and said, listen, working your head off, this is kind of the Styles paraphrase, <laughs> working your head off, and, and then being angry at people because we know that Martha was like wondering why her sister wasn't helping. Hey, Mary, get off your duff and help me. That's what happens when doing takes the place of being. When worship takes a backseat to work, we start pointing at people, wondering what's your problem. And suddenly our tasks, our agendas become front and center. And Jesus said in a very clear but kind way, Hey, Mary's chosen the part that matters most. He was saying exactly what I think the Savior to Joshua. When you're on the precipice of your greatest battles, don't let your battle um, personify. Don't, don't, don't become the battle. Don't let what you do become who you are. Sometimes folks will ask me after I meet them for the first time, Hey, uh, what do you do? And just to kind of get under their skin a little bit, I say, well, I'm a husband first. And the father next, and they're like, well, what do you do to make money? You know, that's what they really want to know, right? Sometimes too often we go right to our jobs, don't we? As if that's what identifies us. Now, do I think preaching's in my blood? Do I think the call of God's on my life? I do. 
I think God has set me apart for this task. So there is a, a sense in which this is kind of in my DNA. And if you're, not, if you're not sure what that means, just ask my family. They can kind of explain that to you a little bit, how it just kind of comes out of my pores a lot when I'm at home. But it doesn't define who I am. Pastoring first family is really something I do because of God's call on my life. And if someone's upset or, or disgruntled or if they're happy and praise me, I just try to let all of that roll past me. Because if all of that is either great or bad, guess what I still am? I'm still a child of God. I'm still married to Julie and her husband. I still got four kids. Those things won't ever change. And it would be wise for us to begin to identify ourselves with our relationship to God as opposed to our rituals for God. Amen? You see, in both these situations, I see God doing something on a broader scale. God is calling His people as a whole to a place beyond the battle, to be marked for Him. And He's calling His leader to a place beyond the battle, to be molded by Him. And in both those instances, God is preparing them for the battles ahead. He's getting them ready for victory. In fact, here's how we'll say it. Would you say this with me in a simple sentence? God is calling us. Say it with me, would you? God is calling us to be marked by baptism and molded in worship so that we are poised for battle and victory. Two very important calls of the conqueror, shall we say. Two very important commands that ring out from the throne every single day. Have you been marked? And are you being molded? In fact, just to bring some additional light to this subject, I've discovered that these are probably two of the most underestimated disciplines of the Christian life. In fact, on Sundays that we talk about baptism... We usually on Monday get a host of responses, cards or calls, and I love this, from people who say, Todd, I just never thought about it. I didn't know that from Scripture. A lot of new believers or folks who have been what I call de-churched. They've been out of church for, let's say, 10 or plus years or in that range. And, and they see the Bible clearly taught and they think, oh, okay, well, if, if that's what the Bible says, I want to obey God. And we'll get a host of calls. Hey, Todd, I, I want to be baptized. And we'll sit down with them. We have a CD we provide on baptism and what it means in the New Testament. And we teach them. And it always happens. When we talk about baptism very clearly, people respond. The church has underestimated the importance of this command of the Great Commission. Something else that happens is this. We get a host of people who will commit to spending more time with God. Now granted, you here, I would say most of you have probably been baptized. This is the core of our church. Most of our church leaders attend the 830 service. And most of our guests and, and, and people who are checking us out come at 1030. But there may be folks here who, are, who need to get baptized. What there are here, though, I'll tell you this, is a host of people probably who sometimes let your time with God slide because you're just really busy, aren't you? And man, if God has seen my to-do list, He would understand why I'm letting it slide. <laughs> Never said that before. If God knew how much I had to do today, you're too busy not to pray. You're too busy not to start your day with God, to end your day with God. Wherever you choose to say, God, okay, now it's just me and you time, and I need you to mold my heart because there's going to be a thousand things grabbing for my attention. There's going to be a hundred temptations. There's going to be people galore and projects and, and tasks. Some could pull me away. 
There's going to be enticements and entrustments. So God, before the day begins or after the day ends or somewhere today, God, that's all set aside and it's just me and you. And God, mold my heart. Teach me to worship you. And I suspect this week there will be a number of you, and I praise the Lord for this, who will recommit to a more disciplined, focused time in the Word. Amen? I want you to commit to that. Amen? I want the application today to be so clear that you don't leave wondering, thinking, well, that was a good story and an interesting uh, volume level by Todd, but I didn't quite know what to do. No, no. Today I'm asking you to do two, two, two things. Answer the call of the conqueror. If you've not been baptized, be marked in a physical, external way as one of God's people. Amen? And if you're finding yourself detoured by all you have to do, learn in the middle of your projects to focus on who you are with God. Take the time to be molded by the Master. As Joshua 5 ends, I love the last four words. We underline these in Joshua 5, verse 15. And Joshua did so. Isn't that good? Oh, that we would leave this morning. And Marty did so. And Jason did so. And Shauna did so. That you would answer the call of the conqueror. Whether it would be to be baptized or to be to be molded in worship and spend time with God, letting Him take care of your heart, that we would obey God. That we would say to the Lord, You can count on me. That's exactly the motto that, was, that characterized Jeb Stewart in the Civil War. You may have heard of him. He was known as the Eyes of the Army. And Robert E. Lee had no one better than Jeb Stewart. In fact, on several occasions whether it was the campaign um, to, to uh, infiltrate enemy lines and get plans, or whether it was to destroy a cache of weapons or to seize secret documents, no one could do this better than Jeb Stewart. And often, he would sneak and, uh, behind enemy lines and fulfill his mission. And every time he was done, he would report back. He would, he would sign his reports, yours to count on, Jeb. And in some history books, you'll find that Robert E. Lee often refers to his eyes of the army as a man he could always count on. Today, I'm submitting my name to the captain of our salvation with this tagline, yours to count on. Because his call to me is very clear. Amen? I want to be marked. And I remember the day I got baptized after conversion by immersion to obey the Lord. I want to say, God, you can count on me. I want to say to the Lord as well every day, Lord, I'm not, uh, I'm not an exception. I'm susceptible. I'm just a human like all of you. And God, I need more than anyone to be molded by you every single day. So Lord, in the middle of the battles and the projects and the agendas, teach me to stop, fall on my face and worship you. Yours to count on, God. And then sign my name to it. Will you join me in that? You just say, Lord, I see the two application points, and you can count on me.